And so uh, today we move to James, where a similar series takes place, trusting in God or faith in God, and what that looks like in the life of the Christian. And so that would be the theme, this common thread weaving throughout the book is the fruit of faith. In five chapters, uh, we've got 12 just uh, mentions of the word faith. Faith, 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 faith. I mean, you could just do that 12 times and it's just, it shows that that repetition is something that the author is trying to get across. We're going to find in this letter, uh, it'll be different uh, as it has a different author. Um, it'll, it'll be not so much Pauline as we've spent much time in Romans and 1 Corinthians. It, it'll be Jamesine. You know, it'll be James. It'll be different. But we're also going to see it's going to be intensely practical. A lot of things for us to do. A lot of things for us to be. A lot of action statements from this apostle. Now, God's word wasn't given to us ultimately so that our knowledge could just increase. But rather that our lives would be changed. That our lives would be changed as that input of knowledge goes in. Then there would be output of action for the kingdom of God. We've been given the word of God so that we could live the life of a Christian. In five chapters, James is going to give ten main pillars about faith. Let me just list them off. Faith without works cannot be called faith. It's dead, and a dead faith is worse than no faith at all. A faith must work and produce and be visible and inspire action. Secondly, faith endures trials. Trials come and go, but strong faith will face them head on. Thirdly, faith understands temptation. Faith obeys the word. Faith harbors no prejudice. There won't be favoritism as we're living out faith. Faith controls the tongue, a very small but powerful part of our body that we have to constantly keep in line. As we're walking in faith, there will be control over our speech. Faith acts wisely. Helps us choose between heavenly wisdom and shun the wisdom of this world. Faith separates us from this world and brings submission to God. Faith helps us wait for the return of Jesus. It helps us resist the devil and run to God. From the Truth For Life website, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. The letter of James is vital reading whenever a believer is tempted to be content with knowledge devoid of action, to cultivate the world's friendship rather than God's, and to tolerate disorder and selfish ambition. As we'll learn, James shows us that the outward display of faith finds its roots in the inward transformation that has already taken place. These studies through James will provide a forceful and timely reminder that our creed, our doctrine, our belief must be seen in our conduct and our attitude. 
must be displayed in action. Just reading through James as I was preparing to teach it, I got uncomfortable. James is going to challenge us, and we're going to get uncomfortable. We're going to be wiggling around in our seats a little bit over the next 13-some weeks. Many of us who consider ourselves as part of this church family will be confronted by the word of God. It's not going to be just a message to us as individuals, but to us as a church. We've been, I've been teaching you over the last few years some two big words, okay, about Bible study, okay? Just break them down real quick. Two big words. First of all, indicative. Indicative. It means something that indicates. And whenever we go through the Bible, we're going to read indications of the grace and mercy and love of God, okay? Indications. Secondly, imperative. That means it's imperative. You've got to do something. But the second is never without the first. Whenever we're called to do something, it's always based upon because he's done this for us. All right? As we have these indications of the gospel and of redemption from our sin and of destruction, that good news is always going to lead us to moral imperatives, to live in it, to doing it, to action. It's going to motivate us. Now, the difficult thing about the book of James is that we see a bit less of the indicatives of the gospel and a lot more of the do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And so we'll always come back to, okay, you know, the gospel, it's got to be the motivating factor behind all of this do. There's 60 do-its that jump out of the text and sometimes feel like they punch us in the nose. There's the do's and there's the don'ts in James. When I married my wife, I learned right away that her favorite movie was a musical. Every new husband's dread, right? Am I right? Uh, it was My Fair Lady, which actually is pretty good. Read the book in high school and just for fun and um, saw the movie as well. No, it was English class. But she sings this song, Eliza Doolittle. She sings this song to her man who's trying to court her. And she says, don't sing me no songs. Don't read me no rhymes. Don't waste my time. Show me. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of James. We all come here. I love you, Lord. I'll sing the songs, you know. I'll, I'll say I'm in, you know. And the Lord would just say, show me. Show me. Let's do it. It's time to do it. James shows us works do matter. He's writing to a bunch of Jews who had been legalistic and so they kind of went over here to this spectrum on the other end of legalism to well now i'm just not going to do anything for the lord i'm just going to say i follow him but no action and james is going to say man i know you were over here and you had this yoke upon your necks of of the law and of legalism and the pharisees and all that but don't go clear over here because that's also not right the faith that you have in Jesus Christ will produce action. The works do matter. 
Our doctrine and our belief must show itself in our lives. Our faith must be lived out. And there must be results of changed lives. It's New Testament, guys. It's context of the whole New Testament. And so let's get into it. Verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. So James, the author, is the half-brother of Jesus. Now what's incredible about having this half-brother of Jesus write this book is that he's the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. He lived with Jesus. They were little kids together. They were, you know, maybe on the same little league team together, whatever it was that they played over there, you know. They were educated together. They grew up. They ate. They slept. They snuggled in bed together as a family. This dude knows Jesus. But something that's perhaps equally incredible about having this guy write this book is that when Jesus was on the earth, this James was an agnostic. He did not believe. He did not believe the words of his brother. In John chapter 7, it says that his brothers did not believe him. And in Mark chapter 3 verse 21, it says, when his own people heard about it, what he was doing, what Jesus was doing, all of his preaching, all of his miracles, all of his action, it says that his own people went out to lay a hold of him for they said, he's out of his mind. He's crazy. His own people, James, didn't believe him. And as they grew up, yeah, that's my brother. He's straight crazy. <laughs> thinks he's the Messiah. Thinks he's God. But something took place that changed that in this half-brother's life. The resurrection. The resurrection of his brother from the dead, after he witnessed him nailed to that tree, being scourged by a Roman whip, being pierced through with a spear so that out of his heart, out of his side came blood and water, buried, sealed into a tomb, three days later, later risen from the dead. Yeah, that's my brother. Yeah, that's my brother. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, when he defends the resurrection, he says, when Jesus rose, he went and made a special appearance to James. They had a special bro time, a little bro bonding. Like, here I am. Something changed in James's life where he went from agnostic, Jesus is straight crazy, to I'm going to live entirely for this man. James's testimony fits right in with 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul says we used to view Jesus according to fleshly things, but not any longer. James's testimony is I no longer view my brother the same way. And I hope that that would be your testimony as we go through the book of James. So not only was James an agnostic not only did after the resurrection he become a believer, but right after Jesus ascended into heaven, we see him at the first prayer meeting in Acts chapter 1. And then over some time, he eventually became a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. 
Paul calls him in Galatians, I think it's chapter 1, that James was a pillar of the Jerusalem church. And in Acts chapter 15, when there's some great debate going on within the church, James stands up with like a word of wisdom from the Spirit and speaks and kind of brings order and brings everything back together uh, and brings a resolution to the debate. So he goes from agnostic to believer to serving in a leadership position in the Jerusalem church. He was known in history by his fervent prayer life. He had the nickname Ol Camel Knees. I think I put the Ol in there, but Camel Knees was like a nickname that he had, having naughty knees from spending so much time in prayer. Eusebius was a church historian. He said, James used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for the forgiveness of the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel because of his constant worship of God. So this man, the half-brother of Jesus, and I say half-brother because they shared a mother, but not a father, calls himself in this first verse a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his introduction, we see such humility He's Jesus' blood brother. He could have referred to himself as the Savior's closest sibling or the kid brother of God. Instead, James is content to call himself a servant, a slave. He refuses to pull rank or parade this status. He knows he's just a sinner saved by grace who is an agnostic during the Lord's earthly ministry. It's an honor to simply be a servant. Now, this word bondservant is an incredible word. It's the word doulos. And its first mention is clear back in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 2, where you see, long story short, a slave who, during the year of Jubilee, has the opportunity to go free and no longer be a servant. Yet because he loves his master, he willingly decides to stay on for the rest of his life and to be part of this household, to be part of this service to this master. And it says, because he loves this master, he would come and say, I choose to stay here for the rest of my life. And so they would take this servant to the doorpost of the house. And the ceremony and the custom was that they would put his earlobe up against the door of the house. And they would pierce it and thrust it through with a wooden awl. And that was a symbol of this agreement that I have willingly chosen to stay here and to be your servant. So guys, if you got piercings, make them wooden, okay? That's biblical, all right? But he's, he was a doulos, and Paul would consi- consistently call himself a doulos. James, the brother of the Lord, says, I'm a servant, and I willingly offer up my life as a bondservant. If you're a Christian today, that's your title too. Servant of the Lord. That's the best part of your resume, that you serve the living God. James here calls his brother the Lord. It's not an expression of devotion, but is a direct translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, which means that he is identifying Jesus as the Lord. My brother is the Lord, Joshua, or Jesus, meaning salvation, the anointed one. 
According to Josephus, who was a first century historian, James was condemned to death by the Jewish Sanhedrin in AD 62 after the governor Festus, who we read about in Acts 24. The Jewish leaders took James to the top of the temple, ordered him to recount his faith in front of the people, and rather than recant, he preached the gospel. And the Jews became so enraged that they pushed, pushed James off the top of the temple. He survived the fall, bent down, and began kneeling and praying with those camel knees of his. And so they began to beat him to death with clubs as he knelt and prayed. That's who we're reading from here today. As he writes to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, the Messianic Jews who'd been pushed out of Jerusalem from the persecution of Herod. They are spread all over the world. Peter too, in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, would write to the Jews of the dispersion as they'd been spread all throughout. That's a bit of our introduction to the book of James and the author and who it was written to. And so we get into these lessons on faith and pillars of faith. And we see beginning in verse 2 that First of all, faith has perspective. Faith has perspective in trials. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. One man wisely said that every one of us is either going into a trial or we're currently in a trial or we're coming out of a trial only to be going into another trial. They are constant Trials are constant in human life. And to become a Christian does not mean that life is all roses and rainbows and unicorns and kittens and raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens or whatever, you know, sound of music. I'm into musicals right now. But rather, the Christian life is marked by trials. Now, this may not be the first thing that you tell somebody when you hear the news of their trial. It's good to weep and it's good to mourn with them. But eventually, it is good to speak into their life that, man, to have a perspective of joy, to count it and reckon it as joy, as a reason for total gladness. Maybe you have an NIV version that reads, pure joy. Consider it pure joy, unadulterated joy when you go through trials. No one here probably uses the New English Bible, but count yourselves supremely happy <laughs> what else does it look like I'm going through this horrible thing man and then you kind of tick a little bit you know NASB consider it nothing but joy when we go through trials it's nothing but joy for the Christian whose life will be marked by trials Jesus himself said, I've spoken to you so that you can have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I love language like that because I married an Oregon State cheerleader. When we started dating, she was an Oregon State cheerleader. Woo! You know? And she's always been my cheerleader. But Lindsay, man, she just just, you know, it was a rule. When you're out there on the court, man, you're just like, 
you know, and the team is losing and they're just still like got their little pom-poms and they're just like, woo, you know, cheering, rejoicing is another word for that. Be of good cheer in the midst of tribulation. I have overcome the world. It's about perspective. As you are going through your trial or your tribulation, you remember something. Jesus said it was going to happen. He's overcome the world. Be cheerful. Do it. Be cheerful. When you fall into various trials, notice it's when you fall. First of all, notice it's not if you fall, it's when. These are going to happen. But then you fall into them. You run into them. These trials are inevitable. They're not unusual. Fall is the same word that's used when the Samaritan was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell in among thieves. All of a sudden, this journey has clothes being ripped off of him and he receives a beating that leaves him pulverized in the, in the bar ditch of the road. He fell into it on the way to Jericho. Or the same verb is used in Acts 27 when Paul's ship hits a sandbar. Bam! You're in it. Isn't that how trials are? Just having a good old day, you know? And then, bam! It hits you. You have fallen into a trial. And they are various trials. The, the direct translation is multicolored trials. They come in various ways. They are strange sometimes. They are odd. Listening right now to a story of a man on trial for murder... He was convicted for murder. He's spending life in prison. He's being interviewed. But he tells the story. He's claiming innocence. And he tells the story of the agony of just the process of being on trial as a 17-year-old kid. And how in prison they'd wake you up at 3 a.m. And you'd, you know, they'd bring in like a suit for you to wear. And then they'd put you in like this bullpen waiting to go to another bullpen, waiting to finally go to sit in a court where everyone's looking at you, judging you, and hating you, uh, and you can't even stand up and defend yourself. And the way he puts this just horrific experience of agony, as he says uh, in this interview, it was a trial within a trial. So maybe you're going through trials, and maybe you're going through trials within trials. But they are various trials. J.B. Phillips, he's a, he wrote a paraphrase in England during World War II for the youth to understand the Bible. He paraphrases our passage today. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your life, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. I'm not there. I'm not. I'm not there. This is for me, you guys. You guys are going to be hearing a 13-week series on just for me, okay? Because I don't, I don't default to that when the trials come in. We need to respond even after today in faith. Lord, make our default cheerful when the trial comes, when the multicolored trial comes into our life. One of the greatest illusions is to look at somebody else, maybe even in our church, and say, they've obviously got it down. They've got it down. They never go through trials. They never suffer. But if we just spent 
a Wednesday night going around the circle just talking about the trials of our lives. We'd be here for weeks. Nobody is exempt from them. Psalm 34, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. So why do we have this perspective? Verse 3, the perspective is knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Why would I possibly have any joy going through trials? Why would I have any joy going through pain and tears and hardship and difficulty and discomfort and destitution and agony and fears and failures and terrors and discouragements and heartaches and longings and sorrows and sufferings? Because It's in those that you find pure joy. It's in the Bible. I'm not making this up. It is there that you find pure joy. Now you know. And knowing is half the battle. Now you know. Isn't it say knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now you know. Now I know. That we can have joy because God is doing something. We have to bring what we feel in a situation. We need to bring what we feel underneath the authority of what we know. What the word of God tells us. Here's what the word says, but I feel you need to shut that up right now. It doesn't matter what you feel. It needs to come underneath and come into submission to what we know from scripture. Now we have a chance to turn this tiny little muscle of our Christian life into a strong powerhouse. Just like right now, we're training for Nepal and it's the final month. And so it's the final countdown, you know, and we're hiking a couple times this week and we're just packing weight into our backpacks and you know, popping up on our back and then climbing Barnes Butte together. You know, we got 60 pounds on our back and we're just ah, 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 sweating and bleeding, got bleeding and pain and scabs drying on our clothes. And I take the clothes, ah, ah. You know, if you didn't put weight in your backpack, this is an REI guy, if you didn't put that weight in there, it wouldn't do that. If I didn't wear the backpack, it wouldn't do that, you know. All right, but we're training, we're putting weight, and it is painful. And the the leg muscles are quivering, and the next day they're sore. Some of us have masks, elevation masks that we strap to our face so that only a little bit of air gets in when you breathe in because it simulates what, you know, 11, 13,000 feet are going to be like. And so, (laughs) wait, get up the hill, get up the hill, ah, ah. Why? You idiot. Why would you do that? Because we're getting stronger, sort of. It's the goal. (laughs) Trials build spiritual muscle. Under stress, our faith tightens and toughens up. You think faith is going to snap, but the Lord is controlling the tension the whole time. Check your iPhones. That's an iPhone noise. It's not mine. (laughs) 
There's a story of truckers who would ship codfish from New England docks to markets across the country, but they had a problem with their codfish. In the beginning, they tried to ship frozen cod, but the freezing process robbed the fish of their savory flavor. So the answer was to ship the fish alive in a tank of seawater. Even then, by the time the fish had been on the road for three or four days, the codfish not only had lost their flavor, but now they had a mushy texture. So someone got real creative in this process, and they thought, you know what? The cod's natural enemy is a catfish. And so they put a bunch of catfish in these fish tanks while they're driving across the country, and these catfish are chasing the codfish around in the tank the whole entire time. And so by the time the fish make it to market, they're buff, they're tasting good, and they got some muscle. That's what trials do for our faith. The Lord is dumping catfish into our tanks. And if he doesn't, we will lose our godly flavor and our faith will get all mushy. Our faith grows under pressure. God applies the resistant bands of trials and tribulation so that our faith will go further, last longer, hold tighter, and stretch through the hardship. How do we know we believe God? We come here, we say it. Is that it? We know we believe God is our father when we're in those times when we need a father. Derek Prime, an incredible pastor from England, writes, Trouble, hardship, and various forms of suffering come to all of us at some time or another. The natural tendency may be to feel that such things are a waste of human life and to be avoided at all costs. Knowledge informs us otherwise. That's where I'm at. In and of myself, avoid trials at all costs. They are a waste of time. But knowledge, we know that the testing of our faith produces patience. That's where perspective is fundamental as we go through life, as we tackle trials. We need to think correctly so that we can respond correctly. One Puritan preacher, Thomas Goodwin, wrote, This is the hardest duty that was ever required of the distressed heart of man. And yet God would not require it if it were unattainable. It's tough to switch to that perspective and realize that these are good things, though they are hard things. But James is saying when trials and difficulties come, they will inevitably work out to benefit He says, we know that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now, the faith that it's speaking of here, it's speaking of your Christian faith. Are you a person of faith in such a way that you have been saved from sin and death in the world and the powers of darkness, and you've been saved into the righteousness of God, the light of God? Your Christian faith is tested in these times. It's a way to show you're really genuinely saved. Going through trials will show that. The winds, one man wrote, the winds of tribulation blow away the chaff of error, hypocrisy, and doubt. 
leaving that which survives the test, the genuine element of Christian character. Embrace the trials as a friend because they blow away the junk and they leave genuine Christian character. If you're a hypocrite, the trials will send you running for the border because your faith was only skin deep. He's working patience in us, which is endurance. It's perseverance. Let's look at that a little bit, this working out of patience. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we know that as we're going through the trials, we can rejoice. And Peter says, you rejoice because you're going through trials. We rejoice because there's something happening. There's this testing in the same way that gold is tested by fire. Proverbs tells us this, Proverbs 17, 3, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. That iPhone again. <laughs> the Lord tests the hearts of men. The same way that gold is placed in its first crude form into the smelting furnace, the heat is turned up and all of the impurities begin to rise to the top of the gold to be skimmed off and, and to produce that bar of gold, 100% refined and pure. In the same way, trials are the heat that refine our hearts. They bring out the impurities. They're shown and they're forsaken. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2, and another book similar just as far as the trials levels go. Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. For he who has suffered has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. When you are going through suffering, there is an element of purifying that takes place. And the kind that James's listeners are going through, they were being persecuted by their faith in Jesus Christ. When you are being beaten and bludgeoned and martyred for your faith, there's a purity that's worked out in that. You want to make sure that the faith that you're living is a faith worth dying for. He who has suffered has ceased from sin. Romans 5, 3-5 says, not only that, we glory in tribulation. So we've got cheering and rejoicing and being happy in tribulation. And here we see glorying in tribulation. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance or endurance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. There's this good chain, this link of what patience leads to. Character leads to hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That is the work that the Lord is doing in trials. Romans 8, 28, you guys know this one. It's the memory verse on your bumper sticker. And we know that all things work together for good 
for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. I remember uh, my dad died when I was 19 and uh, being at the memorial service and my friend Ben came up to me and he just said, Rory, he's quoted this, we know that all things are working together for the good. And he just said, as a, I think he was 20, a 20-year-old 20 said to me, it doesn't say we see it. Right now, man, you're grieving. We don't see it, but we know it. Remember that. I've remembered that for the last 13 years. We know all things work together for the good. They're working for good. But this isn't, this isn't just a blanket statement that everything everywhere is working for everyone's good. It says that it is for those who love God that it's working for the good. It's for those who are called according to his purpose that it's working together for good. And so we make a mistake when we develop an Oprah theology and just say we're all God's children and God is just working everything out for the good in all of our lives. That is not true. If you are in a place of rebellion against God, the trials in your life may not be for good. They may be working a few different things out. God perhaps is using the trials for the good, but not to just keep you on your merry way, but rather to draw you close to him, to break you, to discipline you, to chastise you, to bring brokenness in your life so that you realize you've got nothing and he is everything. Perhaps God is judging you for sin. He's disciplining, he's judging for sin and rebellion and hardening your heart to him. And if that's you, if the Lord is saying, that's you today. This little snippet of the message, Rory was led to say that because you're in rebellion against God and there are trials going on. And if you continue, it will not be for good. It will be in chastisement. For those that are walking with the Lord, for those that love God, Peter tells us, chapter 4, verse 12, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial that's to try you, as though some strange thing is happening to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory in God in this matter. Peter distinguishes between people who are suffering for Jesus and the fruit that that brings. And don't be surprised if you're a Christian, you're going through this. But he also distinguishes, but if you're in sin and you're suffering because of your sin, you got to understand that God's doing a work in that. And God is behind that. It's suffering as a Christian that you need not be ashamed and you can glorify God. 1 Peter 4, 19, it's the same chapter, just a few verses later. Let him who suffers or let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Watching a lot of these persecution videos that we've watched on Wednesday nights of the persecuted church and you just hear these people's testimonies 
of suffering for the name of Jesus, and they have completely trusted their souls to the Lord. He's faithful. Though he slay me, still I will trust him. I believe in him. I trust him. I've got faith. In my personal life, I can testify to these things. Suffering as a child who, fifth grade, got the word that my dad had Hodgkin's disease and a grapefruit-sized tumor wrapped between his heart and his lungs. Fifth grade. Dad was in his 30s, mid-30s. And to watch my dad go through chemotherapy, dad, dad was my hero. Rancher, cowboy, Marlboro man without the cigarette, just so cool. So cool. Rode that horse. So cool. Just watch him. Yeah. Drive that truck. Just, you know, loved me, discipled me, all of that. And to watch him lose his hair. And then to watch the scars on his body from operations and procedures and tumors grow back and shrink and radiation burns all over his body and bone marrow transplants where drilling into his spine 13 holes and dying to live they say in the bone marrow transplant as a fifth grader being separated from my family suffering in school just couldn't do schoolwork because of wasn't with my family my dad could die and the cancer would come back and it would go down and it would come back and it would go down as a kid and then even after the bone marrow transplant for years we get called into the living room the cancer's back it's really strong. And I can tell you time and time again where I would run out of that room into my bedroom and bury my face in my pillow, crying, screaming out to God. One specific day as a seventh grader, got a call that it's over. It's over. The cancer is completely invaded. Just go home, go back to the ranch and die. Get your affairs in order. But my dad said, that's not what the Lord has told me is going to happen. And that very day, we walked into a church. And my dad was prayed for by this hyper-Pentecostal charismatic preacher whose methods were not all right. But that man prayed a prayer of faith over my dad, and he was healed of Hodgkin's disease that day, never to get it again. And I'll tell you what, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, he's got it. He's got it. He's got it. He's got it. He's dying. I developed patience and a trust over the years that he's in control. He's in control. We could be told tomorrow that my dad could die until finally 19 years old. He did. But the Lord had been working in me through those years, just patience and endurance and trusting the Lord. And I'm not going to lie to you, there was a moment when my dad died. I was 19 years old. I was the worship leader at our church in Lakeview. I led the youth group. I, you know, it just was a servant in the church. But I said, I'm not leading worship this Sunday. I'm loading up my boat and I'm going fishing up at Dead Horse Lake. And I'm ticked, so I'm not serving right now. Ticked at God. And I'm out there in the lake and catching a little tiny fish. And the Lord just ministers to me. In my frustration, how he has always been faithful, and he's faithful now. And I didn't even finish fishing. I just threw my boat in the truck and headed home. 
the Lord administered to me. And from my youth, that's just a bit of my testimony. That to even now, 2 Corinthians says, we're able to comfort others with the comfort that we've been comforted with. Through those hard times of trials and tribulation. But I remember a season there, grandma dying, dad dying, cancer, all these things. And I'm just saying, I would just like a season without trials, Lord. I would just like a season without trials. And still go through trials. Still th go through trials. Because patience is having a perfect work, verse 4 says. God is working something out. A perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This means a maturing work. As a boy becomes a man, that is what God is doing in your Christian faith today. Whatever trial you're going through, he's making you into a man, spiritually. He's making you into a woman with maturity and perseverance. And we know that that's the case. Closing with Spurgeon as Johnny comes on up. He writes in, uh, in an 1883 sermon, You look at the weather-beaten sailor, the man who is at home on the sea. He has a bronzed face and a mahogany-colored flesh. He looks as tough as heart of oak and as hardy as if he were made of iron. How different from us poor landsmen. How did the man become so inured to hardship, so able to breast the storm so that he does not care whether the wind blows southwest or northwest? He can go out to sea in any kind of weather. He has his sea legs on. How did he come to this strength? By doing business in great waters. He could not have become a hardy seaman by tarrying on shore. Now, Trial works in the saints, that spiritual hardihood, which cannot be learned in ease. You may go to school forever, but you cannot learn endurance there. You may color your cheek with paint, but you cannot give it that ingrained brown, which comes from stormy seas and howling winds. Strong faith and brave patience come of trouble. And a few men in the church who have thus been prepared are worth anything in times of tempest. To reach that condition of firm endurance and sacred hardihood is worth all the expense of all the heaped up troubles that ever come upon us from above or from beneath. When trial works patience, we are incalculably enriched. The Lord give us more of this choice grace. And so today, I just felt that maybe it's not just today, maybe it's weeks to come, that we're to just have a time of responding to the Lord and just saying, here today, Lord, you've reminded me that you are sovereign and that you are working in the midst of the trials and the trials within trials. And today, I want to respond to you and say, I know from your word today, from James and from Peter and from Romans and from Proverbs, I know that I'm going to have tribulation. But by faith today, 
I choose. I choose to rejoice. I choose happiness. I choose cheer. Why? Because you have overcome the world. Recently, it's just been resonating in my heart that, you know, Jesus is the greatest example of all this. We don't have a God that's just sitting on the beach somewhere in some nice lawn chair, you know, sipping lemonade or whatever. He has suffered. He has come and took on flesh. He understands the human condition. And Hebrews speaks radically three different times that because he has suffered, he is there to help us in our suffering. So let's call out to our hero today. As I said towards the beginning, I'm not there. That's not my default that I just, all right, a trial. No, it's the opposite of that. It is, it's the opposite of that. And it can even show itself in in yelling and screaming and venting and, and sin. Lord, work in us this default of cheer. And so what we're going to do today in closing with this song is just if that's you and you just just have been shown today that you're like me, that's not your default. And today you think of the trial that you're in or trials, multicolored trials, that you would just choose joy today. And that's not something you just muster up in yourself. That's something that you look to the source Tap into the source. We're not talking about faith in faith in the book of James. We're talking about faith in Jesus Christ. That's where joy is. And so maybe that's you and you would just stand during this song and say, I believe we're singing a song that says, I lift my hands to believe again. And just where you're at, you would just lift your hands and just say, Lord, I come and I know That the testing of my faith produces patience. And I want to submit my feelings and all of my responses and reactions to line up underneath this truth that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you see the end from the beginning. That no matter how horrible it seems, you are working something good. And I trust you. And we're going to have the elders up front. Because... These trials, man, they can't be walked through alone. And maybe you would just come forward today to an elder and just uh, and just ask for prayer. And let the elders come alongside of you and encourage you. Let's close with that today during this last song.
this faith that's tested through trials. It's, it's not a test of wishful thinking or just being hyped up. It's our Christian faith that's being tested, our Christian belief. Maybe in trials, just if you're honest, just you would just be shown by the Lord that there's just not the fruit of Christian belief when trials arise. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open that you may go in. And at Calvary's cross, that's where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. Come to the cross today. Come to what Jesus has done. Peter tells us that he's the example of how to suffer. He's left us an example. In the parable of the sower and the seed, there's one seed that lands on stony ground and immediately it springs up. Seems to have joy as it grows, but very, very quickly afterwards, when trials and tribulations come, it withers away and dies. There was no depth of root. And today, just from your heart, just cry out to the Lord, Lord, give me depth of root to grow and to flourish and to persevere and to endure through drought, through pestilence, through adversity, through trial, Lord. For your glory, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Elders want to just make ourselves available up front here. If you need prayer, come on up. Let us pray for just your, your trials or what's going on.